Let's Go Green on Midlands 103. Supported by the Environmental Departments of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath County Councils. Good evening and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and each week we talk about environmental issues and how we can do our bit to work to mitigate against climate change and the climate crisis. On tonight's show, we're going to be looking ahead to the SEAI's roadshow that's coming to the Midlands in the coming weeks. But first up, we're going to take a look at climate protests. So we are living, we are lucky to be living, in my opinion, in a democratic country. And protest has been part of democracy since, well, since we had democracy. And activists, campaigners, even school students have been making their thoughts heard in sometimes unusual protest methods in recent weeks, months and in the last couple of years. And to talk to us more about this, we're joined by John Gibbons, who is a a climate journalist and activist when it comes to climate change and a bit of an expert when it comes to the climate crisis. John, you're very welcome back to Let's Go Green. Delighted to be on the show, Ashling. So, John, these protests, I think it it might be fair to say, and, you, and I stand to be corrected on this, but the Fridays for the Future movement um, might have been one of the first waves of climate protests that we became aware of here in Ireland. This, this movement of school students refusing to go to school on a Friday, led, of course, by Greta Thunberg, um, who is now, you know, globally famous. Um, but I think it was one of the first times that where there would have been protests in different places over the years, I think it was the first time that here in Ireland, as a country, we, we may have started taking notice of the, of the, of the protests. Yeah, I think, I think you've uh, framed it very, very clearly there. And I'll take you back to um, March 2019. Um, there was a basically part of, a, of an international Fridays for Future. Um, on the 15th of March, there was a meeting or a, a gathering, if you like, in Dublin, um, Stephen's Green. And there were tens of thousands of people came out that day. And I think it really was a, a landmark moment. I mean, I've been at climate marches for, I don't know, 15 years in Ireland at least. And in all that time, uh, you'd basically you'd be on nodding terms with everybody on the march, pretty much, because it's the same old faces, the same mm-hmm. few dozen people. Maybe a big march might get a few hundred people. And I mean, that's really it. Here we had, for the first time, tens of thousands of people on the streets. And it really did have, it electrified, um, if you like, the issue in Ireland. First of all, of course, it got uh, media coverage, front page media coverage, which the climate issue has sorely lacked, particularly from the point of view of the public having their say. Uh, and, and also the proof, if you like, maybe for the first time that there was a groundswell of popular anxiety and a demand for action mm. on the issue. Because I, I honestly believe up until that day, politicians across the road in Leinster House have gone on the assumption that the climate, the environment is really just, uh, you know, the concern of a handful of crusties who could be easily dismissed and it's just a fringe thing. It's not like, you know, farmers or something where you have to take them seriously. The environment had always been pushed into a siding where, you know, oh, we'll do something about it uh, on a quiet day if there's nothing better to do. So this really put it on the map. And and we saw that two months later where the Dáil declared a climate and biodiversity emergency in May 2019, which, of course, was a very good thing. But uh, 
there was only six deputies in the Dáil Chamber when this so-called emergency was declared. So it might tell you that we were kind of speaking out of both sides of our mouth, where we're on the one hand, we're declaring an emergency, but on the other hand, there was no real serious follow through with, with uh, or no serious engagement with, with uh, politicians at that point. I still still very much, I think, uh, for them, viewed as, as an issue that was, was, was at the periphery, if you like, of their concerns. But I do think that student-led movement that getting numbers onto the streets. And of course, it happened again, actually, in, in September 20, 2019. We had thousands of people on the streets again. In fact, there was a kind of a, a camp set up in Merrion Square in Dublin. There was other protests in other parts of the country. Uh, I think most of our major cities, in fact, some of our towns as well, had sub- substantial numbers, hundreds in some cases, and, and, and even more of people on the street. And what it said is, this is an issue that is now a real live political issue right here in Ireland. And I, I do think that shook things up a bit. Now, and I think, John, like I know, like I was in primary school in the 90s mm-hmm. and I distinctly remember learning about, you know, the importance of leave no trace. If you went to the beach, you know, we grew up in the Midlands. So um, going to the beach was a real luxury. And if you got to, to go on a, on a school trip to, to Salt Hill or to British Bay, you, you were lectured about, you know, not leaving any rubbish behind. And I remember little things like that or. I remember taking part in a St. Patrick's Day parade where we were talking about the climate, supposedly, by sweeping up the street. And that was part of the parade. This was the the whole exhibition or even learning about the ozone layer crisis in Australia. But that was all very far away. Like and and the literature, that was important. And, you know, thankfully, we've gotten better at that. But nowadays, climate change and climate crisis is something that young people are learning about in school, that they're talking about in school. And then to see all of a sudden politicians wake up to the fact that at some point these people are going to have the power to either elect us or not um, has been quite interesting, I think. I think you're right. Um, and it, it it definitely, and, and I think you're you're correct in saying that, if you like, the, the antecedents of environmental activism, do, they do go back to, you know, things like tidy towns and so on. People who, I suppose, are caring about their immediate, uh, their immediate sort of locality, wanting mm-hmm. to make it better for, for all kinds of reasons. And many of those people involved in that would, would, have, would have had no interest or involvement in the wider environment movement, but they wanted, they cared about their neighborhood, they cared about the locality. And, you know, in my book, that's a that's a good place to start. They, I mean, they're obviously, they're, they're different ends of a spectrum, but they're still the same spectrum. So, I think that that experience or that that feeling has gone from from something that we need to 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 look after our own neighborhoods which by the way we still do but towards the notion that we also have a wider responsibility and that the crisis now that we're dealing with is both a, a global crisis which we obviously know but it's also a crisis that requires a strong national response and the reason I say that Ashling is as soon as a lot of people, especially politicians, hear the word global, they go, Phew, at least we don't have to do anything about it here in Ireland. Sure, aren't we only small in Ireland? So I'm always very, very leery of throwing the phrase global around because it generally, uh, for a lot of politicians, uh, when they hear that, they think it's got nothing to do with them. But the point, of course, is that it is a global problem that requires every nation to do its fair and full share. And in the case of Ireland, as a wealthy nation, spoke of this before, our share is actually quite significant of what we need to do. Uh, and also, and this is, of course, where it gets tricky, some of the things that we need to do are not going to be popular with the electorate. There are, there are changes that we need to make in how we live, in how we heat our homes, in how we drive, uh, in 
air transport and so on that aren't going to be electorally popular. Now, they're kind of coming anyway, whether we like it or not, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but the question really is, uh, how do politicians gra- grapple with this? And if I can give an example from something I actually heard a little bit earlier today, listening to some politicians on a, on a, uh, a national radio program, and they were pretty much um, almost congratulating one another on their ability to stop um, cycle lanes in different parts, around, in different areas around Ireland, uh, as if somehow or other cycle lanes were a nuisance and they were annoying the public. And I, I was just astonished to listen to this. This was a mixture of councillors and national politicians. And I thought to myself, oh my God, we're in 2023 and we still can't agree in the midst of a climate emergency, an obesity emergency, they need to urgently transition our transport systems. And we have local councillors who are basically afraid of the car lobby. Who are still kowtowed by the car lobby? That, to me, it's 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 extraordinary and it's incredible. And it also means, Ashley, to me, that we, the voters, we need to we need to get proactive because I got the feeling that the car lobby are super good at uh, contacting their councillors, at getting on the phone to them and uh, telling them about how they they their right to drive anywhere, anytime, and park up on the footpath and not be obstructed and to pull their Jeep right in front of the school, all of this stuff, right? They're really good at articulating that position. And it is, of course, a position, uh, it's a position of entitlement, the notion that nobody else, they're not going to share the road with anybody mm-hmm. else. Yeah, now, that's, 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 uh, that's what I heard right only earlier today on the radio. So, yeah. And John, I know I'm like, I can I can hear your frustration as someone who has worked in this area for, for many, many years and has so much experience. You know, like we have a, a political system really where change happens by popular at election time to popular at election time. And there's we're not very good at sustainable politics. Let's be honest about it in this country. We go from crisis to crisis. And it comes back to the the, the, the question of, of protest and and I, I have to wonder how useful protest is in affecting long-term change. So it's amazing to see that so many young people here have given up their Fridays in school, have taken that risk of, of missing class every Friday and, you know, the consequences of that and um, whether it might be from getting given out to by parents or school leaders and missing out on act- on important, uh, you know, items on the curriculum. I am an educator, so I'm on the fence on that one. But like you, you look at the likes of the attempt to glue oneself to a snooker table and you kind of have to wonder, well, yeah, you got a couple of headlines, but what's the point? Yeah, I mean, you raise some, again, some very, very um interesting and, and, and tricky points. And let's take, let's list off a couple of the actions in, in, in the last couple of years that have sort of made the headlines. And probably the most famous one was uh, about about a year ago, uh, some uh, young protesters, they, they threw uh, tomato soup at um, a Van Gogh painting. Now, the Van Gogh painting, I will add, was behind armoured glass. So there was no damage whatsoever done to the painting. But it was a symbolic act that went around the world. Right now, you might say, "Well, why did they do that? Why didn't they, for example, stand outside uh, an oil company and protest?" Right? What wouldn't that be a better thing to do? And the answer, Ashling, is that's exactly what they did as well. But those protests got no coverage at all. Right? So they did all the worthy protests. Now, I'm going to take your listeners back over a hundred years, if I might, just briefly as a detour, back to a time when uh, women had no voting rights 
whatsoever, right? And the suffragette movement kicked off in the probably as far back as the 1860s, 1870s. And for about 20 or 30 years, it was completely peaceful movement involving handing out leaflets, uh, marching up and down, wave, you know, signing petitions to the parliament, etc., etc. And they got absolutely nowhere, no progress whatsoever. Then, uh, as we turned into the 20th century, the movement or parts of the movement began to get into into violence and direct action. And there was obviously the famous instance of the woman uh, throwing herself under the king's horse and she was actually killed in that action. Now, uh, many people will say that was an unforgivable, terrible thing to do, uh, shocking, etc., etc. But guess what? The Oh, and by the way, while I think um, the other action that suffrage involved in at the time, they blew up uh, post boxes. Uh, they sent bombs they set fire to buildings, a small number of buildings, admittedly, but they engaged. Oh, also, they 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 uh, smashed a whole bunch of windows. Now, in other words, the type of unacceptable behavior that any right right minded, decent thinking person would, of course, denounce and say it's appalling. Now, for their troubles, many of these women ended up socially uh, pariahs, and many of them ended up in prison and took huge, huge sacrifices. And they took the sacrifices. And they took the hit so that today's women have the right to vote. It's as simple as that. They made a stand. And at the time, by the way, they were hated for what they did. They were told, your place is in the kitchen. Go home and mind your children. But these women persisted. And because of their persistence and their courage, every woman today has the vote. I would say the same for the civil rights movement. I'd say the same for the anti-apartheid movement. And I repeat this today for the climate movement. The people involved in this, mostly... These are not anarchists, hippie weirdos, by and large. I've been on many of these marches and I'm far from that that caricature either. I'm as middle class as the next person. And many of the people that I meet on these marches are, for example, doctors, scientists, people from all various branches of, of uh, politics and medicine and so on. They're not there because they're anarchists who want to who want to cause trouble or, or who are they're not, you know, like some of these uh, far-right protesters who like goading the police. The climate protest profile have nothing like this. There's there's no violence in it whatsoever, certainly none that I've seen. Now, there is direct action. And we, we mentioned about, uh, you mentioned about the, the snooker table incident. Now, that was on TV, so that got some publicity. But mm-hmm. again, it was, a, it was a, nobody was hurt in it. Uh, they also- and we should say, John, just yeah. in case... Just in case anyone would dare miss the point, you're not suggesting that climate activists should be taking part in violence. You're not suggesting that putting a bomb in the post or or setting a post box on fire is the right way of protesting. You're just highlighting one of the methods historically uh, women at that time used to, to draw attention to their cause. So... Um, so moving back to the, the incident, if you if you didn't see it, you know, there was a snooker tournament underway. I don't follow snooker, to be honest with you. I don't particularly like it. it I find it a bit dull, but that's my opinion. Um, but a couple of people tried to glue themselves to a snooker, snooker table. The tournament was live on TV, as John says, and it, you know, there was some sort of yellow stuff that went, it looked like a bit smoky. Um, and it got a lot of attention because it happened live on TV. And are we drawing the parallel between these unusual type of protests and say the likes of the suffragettes and and the possibility that it might actually affect change. 
Well, I think so. And to, I mean, these are, these are some of the milder ones. There have been other protests. Mm. For example, uh, a group of protesters from, from a group in the UK called Just Stop Oil. Um, uh, two or three guys um, hung a banner down from a bridge and they stopped traffic on this bridge for, I don't know, 14 or 16 hours and caused quite a lot of uh, disruption. And they were eventually arrested and they were given stiff jail sentences. Even though a completely peaceful protest, uh, the judge threw the book at them. And an even more incredible incident, which I, I would like to share with you, there was another case where climate protesters in the UK were in court. Um, again, they had they had glued themselves to a road. And it was a jury trial. And the protesters were ordered by the judge not to tell the jury why they did it. He said that the fact that they were engaged in, in climate action was was irrelevant, according to the judge. And he and he actually sent two of them to prison on contempt of court because they went in and said to the jury, you know, we did this because we're concerned about the climate um, crisis and we want to draw attention to it. And the judge had them sent to jail for doing that. Now, to my mind, that is, if you like, politicizing the judiciary, which is not where we want to go. And on that subject, uh, there's been an incredibly worrying development this week. You may have you may have uh, seen it in the UK, where the Policing Act has has basically been upgraded, if I can put it that way. They're now allowing um, peaceful protesters or even people planning to organize peaceful protests to be arrested and held by the police uh, without charge. And for example, and I know this at a slight tangent, but there was a group of protesters who had planned to hand out placards saying, not my king at this week's coronation. And the truck was seized with the posters in it. And the protesters were arrested ahead of time, right? Now, this, you know, the problem here is you may have, we may have listeners this evening saying, well, do you know what? Good enough for them. Lock them up. Right. What if that person listening to us now is a farmer, just for argument's sake, and they go on a march, right? Because they're, they're marching about the price of whatever it is. Or, and, and let's say that they get locked up for that. Then all of a sudden you discover that these anti-democratic laws that have been brought in to crush protest. Now, they might that they might be used against climate protesters today. They might be used against trade unionists tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But guess what? At some point, they're coming for you. And that's why people, even if you think the climate issue is not your issue, we we in a democracy, we have to stand up for the right to, of people to make peaceful protests. Because and, and the peaceful and thing, so, like yeah. at, at the end of the day, workers going out on strike for better paying conditions. I've done it myself. My family members have done it. We have been able in this country to democratically have our voices heard through peaceful demonstration and action. And like in the UK, it is worrying. Like it's tantamount to to censorship of the views of the public and. You know, whether or not I might agree with anyone else's opinion, they 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 should and they do here, thankfully, but they should have a right to go out and demonstrate that opinion and, and to have their voices heard. It's 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 a small change that I'm not sure that many people have paid attention to, but but it could have quite worrying consequences. I think so. I mean, there was a, there was an infamous incident in uh, Moscow uh, a couple of years ago, um, but it was before the, the Ukraine war. And basically, um, a protester stood in, I think it was in Red Square, and held up a piece of paper, a blank piece of paper, right? There was no message on it. And the police came along and arrested that protester. For what? Okay. Now, we all looked at that, Ashling, at the time and said, oh my God, this is an indication of just how bad things are getting in Russia. Now, 
I think there's a reasonable chance that somebody holding up a blank piece of paper over the last couple of days in London could have been arrested by the police on suspicion of causing a public nuisance. Now, if we allow that type of, of if, you know, if, you know, the, the old song says, if we, if we tolerate then, if we tolerate this, then our children will be next. If we stand by and let politicians in the case, in this particular case, the Tory party destroy people's civil rights, there will be nobody there when your civil rights are taken. Now, I know I appreciate the situation hasn't happened in Ireland and long may that never occur in this country, but we need to be tolerant of the right to dissent, especially if that dissent is peaceful. I do not, for example, extend the right, uh, you know, for people harassing, you know, migrants at their at their place of home or people going to politicians' houses to harass them or threaten their families. That is not peaceful protest. That is uh, it, that is something else. So I'm not saying that every form of protest has to be tolerated. No, it doesn't. There are rules within which protest uh, their rules okay. if you like yeah okay on that then and and this is me totally playing devil's advocate so i hope you forgive me john oh, but yeah. um like we're very familiar with farmers protests in ireland and in recent years we've had a number of slogos through the capital where farm machinery trucks tractors and that have moved very slowly and stayed in protest i think at marion square if memory serves correctly um and, you know, it did cause some air pollution. Let's be honest about it. There were vehicles on the road for longer periods of time than they might have ordinarily been. You know, we had never gone as far as Dublin. You know, um, a lot of traffic just stuck moving, inching along in the city. And it could be argued that while that act of protest is democratic and those farmers have a right to have their opinions heard, but that there may have been some environmental impact. So where do we draw the line on, like you mentioned there about protests targeting politicians at their home? And, you know, and I can't see how targeting anybody at their home, whether it be a direct provision centre or um, a, a hotel housing refugees or, or a politician's home, don't care how how dislikable the politician is. I don't see how that specific personalised targeted attack can be seen as peaceful. But is there a line there as to, as to what kind of protest is acceptable in our society? Well, I mean, to take your immediate analogy, Ashlyn, I mean, um, the the like if farmers decide to drive their tractors into the city uh, to have a protest, that is their democratic right. Okay. Full stop. If there's an environmental impact to that, well, if those tractors are driving around in the field, uh, they'd be, you know, they'd be the same smoke. So, you mm -hmm. know, it, I, yeah. And I will, I will, you know, they say I may completely disagree with you, but I will defend your right to disagree with me. And I think all of us who believe and subscribe to democracy, democracy has to also include and extend to people with whom we disagree, but we have to disagree in a, in a respectful way. Uh, so, you know, I may not be, I may not be a member of of your union, but you know, will I? Would I cross your picket line? No, I wouldn't, because I respect that your union is trying to to do whatever it's doing, and and so on. Where the line that you're describing, I believe, is when the right to protest is used as, in fact, a cover for the right to intimidate and the right to harass. And I think all of us know the type of individuals, uh, in many cases, either 
criminals or people are certainly from that from that that element of particularly in Ireland we have a particular problem with the far right uh now there may well be elements on the far left as well but certainly it's a far right problem that we have and these are elements who are looking to use the cover of legitimate protest to basically engage in for example um xenophobia and you know stoking up hatred against minorities of whatever whether it's immigrants or whether it's people from the whatever community that these people disagree with and that's where i draw the line so i think legitimate protest yes whether you agree with the 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 the, the cause or not i think we have to respect if we believe we're a democracy we have to ex- we have to respect people's right to express those opinions even if it causes us some some inconvenience but we sure as heck do not have to tolerate um, the intolerant and we don't have to tolerate uh, bigots and bullies. And the one thing that is for sure in life and as cliched as it may be, the only thing that can guarantee evil succeeds is by standing by and doing nothing. Well, John Gibbons, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you once again. Uh, Great chats as always, John. Thank you so much for always being so generous with your thoughts, opinions and of course your time. It's always lovely to have you on the show. My pleasure, Ashling, and and I really, really enjoy being on the show. Thank you. We'll be back after the break. Midlands 183. You're listening to Let's Go Green on Midlands 103. Now, you might have heard in the news headlines during the week that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has said that the vast majority of Ireland's bathing waters are of an excellent quality. Now, as someone who enjoys swimming in good weather, I'm a fair weather swimming swimmer, I have to admit, but I do love getting into a lake or the ocean. I think we're very lucky here in this country. We probably don't appreciate it as much as we should. It was great news to hear. Now, according to the list and the full map is available on the news section of midlands103.com. But Loch Ool in Mullingar is included in the excellent water quality, which is great to hear. Loch Ennel, which is where I tend to swim when I'm in the Midlands, is slightly behind with good water quality. The water quality at Lilliput in Loch Ennel was poor between 2018 and 2020, but now it's up to good and that is fantastic to hear. Now, I should note that I am aware of other places where people swim in the Midlands, but they're not actually listed on the EPA map. So the ones that are listed for the Midlands, at least, would be Loch Ennel in um, Loch Ennel's Lilliput. And I suppose the bathing place at Portumna technically part of the Midlands but if you're from Portumna and you think you're more of a Western person well you can let me know yourself you can get in contact with me here on the show through midlands103.com just click on the on air team look for my name Ashling O'Rourke and you can send me a direct message yourself but it's always great to hear that we can swim safely in our bathing waters this summer it's worth checking out the map on the EPA's website or indeed on the news article on midlands103.com just to check that you are swimming in a in a part of the country in a waterway that is considered clean for swimming and clean enough for swimming in. After the break, we are going to be talking to the SEAI about their first ever roadshow, which is taking place in Tullamore this coming weekend. Midlands 183. 
You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103, and I hope you have been enjoying this week's episode so far. Well, you may recall from last week's episode, I did give you a heads up that we will be talking about an event coming to the Midlands organized by the SEAI. This is effectively a roadshow. The SEAI is hosting an event in Tullamore, County Offaly, in the, in the heart of the Midlands, you might say, to educate us all on how we can reduce our energy use and our bills at home. And to talk to us more about that now, we're, talk, we're joined by the SEAI, and I should say that's the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland's marketing manager, Susan Andrews. Susan, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Susan, this event that's happening in the Tullamore Court Hotel on the 20th of May, what exactly is it? Well, it's an opportunity for homeowners to come and meet with um, the SCAI's team, so our national retrofit team. And we also have some of our registered one-stop shops are going to be in the room. We have the Tullamore Credit Union there and a number of other players that are involved in supporting homeowners with starting their home energy upgrade journey. So it's really an informative session. Um, It's You'll come in, you can meet with us, we'll have different stands, so it's not a formal sit-down lecture. We will have talks throughout the day just explaining what home energy upgrades are, the benefits of them, how to start your journey. And it's for anyone you know, who's either just thinking about it, who just wants to find out, or who may have already started along their journey and wants to get more technical advice. We have a range of advice there in the room. We have a lot of experts in the room that they can come in and talk to. And like Susan, like, and I mentioned this to you before, um, before we we came on air, and I mentioned it on the show last week as well. I frequently on the show will reference seai.ie because I think it's a great website, and it's full of very useful, easy to follow, which is why I like it. Information, good to hear. <laughs> but it is one that we're doing something major to your home. It's great to be able to sit at home, you know, and with a cup of tea on the sofa and Google it and look at the website and find out the information, but actually to get the opportunity to speak to somebody about your specific issue in person, yeah. I would think is, is really helpful. And, and that's exactly it. So the SEAI isn't a public facing body. We don't have that facility to have people coming in to talk to us. So this is actually a first for us. As you said, it's a mini roadshow for us where we're going to go out. Tullamore is our first location. It's very much at community level. So we really want to get local homeowners and give them that opportunity to come in and talk directly to us. So they'll get that independent advice from us and we'll really just help them and explain how to start. So as you said, it's very daunting. I mean, you know, a lot of times it's one of the most popular questions. Where do I start? They know they live in a drafty home. They know they have a home with a low BE or they're hearing there's so much talk about home energy upgrades, retrofitting, needing to get insulation, external insulation. They're hearing all these things about heat pumps. And homeowners are very aware of, okay, we need to start doing this, but it's where do we start and how do we start? So they're the key questions we get asked a lot. Um, And that's where it's a great opportunity for homeowners to pop in. We're going to be in the Tullamore Court. um, It opens at 11 a.m. and we'll be there till four. So at any stage, just come into us, have a chat with us. And then if you do want to proceed, as I said, we have a number of our one-stop shop registered providers in the room. So you can go over and talk to them. They'll be there showcasing their services and they can help you along the way. You can start. The best place to start is with a either a BE or assessment if you're really at a starting point where you don't know what you want to do and you just want to get a sense of how well your home is in terms of energy efficiency. You can start with a BE or assessment. 
But if you are somebody who who knows, actually, I want to do multiple upgrades, I really want to go the whole hog, get my house up to a minimum B2, then the best place to start is talking with one of our one-stop shops. They'll arrange to carry out a home energy assessment. So it is similar to a BEOR, you'll get that pre-BEOR, but it's a bit more technical. They get really into the level of upgrades that are going to be required and they'll give you an estimate of cost. Now, it is just an estimate. It's if you decide then to proceed and they'll come out and do a full quote. What I would say about that second assessment, that home energy assessment, there's a standalone grant of €350 for the homeowner. So you can get that done with a one-stop shop. And then if you decide, actually, I don't want to do that. I might just want to do attic insulation or you might not want to do anything. You don't have to go ahead. So you're not tied in when you get a home energy assessment, but you will get that grant of €350 towards it. That's really good to know because I think as well, like, And particularly, and I'm not giving out about politicians, but when we hear politicians on the airwaves talking about these issues, Mm -hmm. they frequently bandy about thousands. And, you know, oh, should it cost thousands? The average homeowner needs to spend 20,000 or 10,000. Or, you know, it all sounds for a lot of us Mm -hmm. very daunting financially. So, by the sounds of it, we could pop along on Saturday, the 20th of May to the Tullamore Court Hotel and even just get an idea as to the changes that I need to make and how much it might cost me specifically, as opposed to, well, the average homeowner might spend A, B, C and D, but we don't have, especially in Offaly, the housing stock that we have is very much one-off housing. So we can't really go on the the average house price because all our houses are very different. And that's why getting the home energy assessment is so important. But what I'd also say is, you know, you're right. There's a lot of talk in the media about the cost of home energy upgrades and that it's out of our reach. But we actually have two different grant routes. They're the exact same fixed grant values, whether you're doing attic, wall insulation, installing a heat pump. But you can either go down our individual grant route, which gives homeowners that opportunity to carry out upgrades over time. So you don't have to do everything in one go. You don't have to meet that B2. You can actually do it in a piecemeal fashion, step by step over a number of years. Um, and and that will suit different requirements, different budgets. And with that route, you can go through some of our one-stop shops to carry out those individual upgrades. But we also have over a thousand registered contractors on our website. So there will be a huge database of local contractors within Tullamore that will be supporting those individual upgrades. So it helps homeowners who might just want to start with attic insulation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then maybe add things on over time. Really, the benefit is if you are somebody that you know, you might be doing an extension, renovating an old house, that's a good time to do the full upgrade and do lots of measures all in one go. And then the benefit with going through the one-stop shop is that they take the hassle out of it for you. They're going to project manage it from start to finish. And the real benefit there to the homeowner is you get the grant up front. So with the individual grants, you apply online. And then you select your registered contractor and you apply for the grant after the works are carried out. But with the one-stop shop route, because you're investing such a big amount of money into a major upgrade, you're getting the grant deducted from the cost works up front. Now, what I would say, our one-stop shop grant route, it only opened last year. So it has actually been ramping up substantially. We've, I think we're up to 13 registered one-stop shops and we have a number still coming through the system. So we will see that growing um, throughout the months. But um, what I was going to say there is we're seeing with the grant applications that and the amounts that they're being charged, it can vary anything from 20,000 up to, say, the, the 70 to the 80,000. 
And it absolutely depends on the type of house you have. As you said, they're one-off houses. You can have a house that actually doesn't need a huge amount or it's quite easy to upgrade. And you could be bringing it up to that B2 level and might only have to invest 20,000. Or you may even decide to go beyond the B2. So you have to make sure you're comparing quotes that are like for like, because in some cases they might say to you, do you want to add on solar PV? Do you want to bring your house up to an A rated? So there's so many variables and options that it is important to start with your home energy assessment and see, but what's the roadmap? And can I ask as well, just for, for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, mm. what is or who are a one-stop shop? Well, there we've a list on our website. So there any there's a number of different contractors. They could be energy providers that are all like the likes of SSE Electricity are one. Um, I don't want to be calling out names, but we've got Core Insulation, we've got Churchfield, uh, Bayview. So there's a whole list, and their contractors. A lot of them are already familiar with SCAI and our technical standards. So they work. They make basically by going through any of our registered contractors or our one-stop shops, you've got the assurance that one, they're tax and insurance compliant because they're working with a government body, but they're also going to make sure that the works carried out are to the minimum building regulations. So we ensure that the building regulations are met and in some cases then it's a slightly higher standard. So it gives you that assurance that the quality of work is going to be higher than if you go you know, outside of that and you've no control or no real background on who you're using. And like, I'm thinking as well that like some of these changes that many of us, myself included, need to make to our own homes, they might not be in the 20,000 range. You know, like I'm thinking like my own family home, the front door has been on that door, on that building since I think it was built in the 60s. And I can see the gaps where the air is getting in and the heat is getting out. And I know it needs to be changed, but, you know, it's just it's been on the list and haven't quite gotten around to it yet. Can people go along like, you know, who might have smaller jobs to tackle um, or do they need to be, you know, do they need to be ready to go with a large amount of cash? Oh, and that's it. With the individual grant route, you can, we'd always say to start with your insulation. So always look at the fabric of your home because the, the main thing is you're losing up to 30% of your heat through a uninsulated or poorly insulated attic space and walls, uh, door, poorly performing doors and windows. So that's where you start. And um, so with the individual grants, you can get an individual grant for attic insulation. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head the amount for attic insulation. So it's up to 1,500 euro okay. for the house. Um, so that would give you a sense that the grants are roughly 25 to 30% of the cost of works. So, you know, there's not a huge amount. It's fairly, it's a fairly easy upgrade to do. It doesn't cause major disruption in the house. It's relatively quick to do. Um, and you're instantly going to be saving on your energy bills because you're keeping that heat in. And the same with the likes of wall insulation. We have various grants for cavity wall insulation. That's where they pump the walls, internal, external wall insulation. And again, it's about keeping that heat in. Now, we don't have individual grants for windows and doors, but if you do go the one-stop shop route where you're doing multiple upgrades, it will include then windows and doors in that case, because you are required under that grant rooms where you're doing multiple upgrades all in one go, you have to get to a minimum B2 rating. And I think like this, as I'm listening to you speak there, like a lot of the overwhelm here is you're trying to figure out which is the best route for my home and my family and my budget. So, so going along to an event like this, getting the advice from the experts there in person and even getting that home assessment grant really and truly could be invaluable to a householder. 
I, I think so. I mean, as I said, it's the, it's the first time SCAI has gone out at, as a roadshow by themselves. We're organizing this event. It's a free event. We've invited lots of stakeholders to come into the room. So as I said, we've the Tullamore Credit Union there who offer green financing so that can help you on your road to a home energy upgrade. And um, we have our one-stop shops. So it is about coming in, getting that advice. And um, even some of the research we do at homeowners who apply for a grant, we know that homeowners are taking up to about a year thinking about this whole thing before they actually apply for a grant because there is an awful lot to take in. It's, it is very daunting. And quite often, I know I, like, I absolutely think the information on our website is fantastic, but to be able to come in and talk face-to-face with an expert, it just gives you that peace of mind. And just as well, like a, a lot of our um, listeners at this this time of the evening might be in the retiree category, not not all, but many. And I'm just wondering if you are a pensioner, are there any, um, does that give you any benefits in terms of grants? Is, is that taken into consideration in, in, when, in the whole application process? I'm afraid not. No, um, our grants, so for the individual grants and the ones I've shopped, they're not in any way means tested. And often people think these grants are means tested. We have one grant route that's um, fully funded and that's for certain homeowners in receipt of certain welfare payments doesn't include the state pension, um, but the the one-stop shop and individual grants, they're not means tested. So, yeah. Okay. And again, that self-assessment, that sorry, that, that home assessment, yeah. you, you can have someone come to your house, take an overarching look of what the issues are, what needs to be done and give you their opinion on the situation. That's, that's 350 euro, but that's covered by a grant. Yeah, so that's you book that home energy assessment through one of our registered one-stop shops. They'll organize for an assessor to come out to the home and they do a full assessment. So they look at everything like the level of insulation you have in your attic, your walls. They look at how well your windows and doors are performing. They look at your heating system to see what fuel you're on, how old it is so they can determine the efficiency of it. Um, And they even look at everything like your fireplaces and what are drafty, all of that, the energy consumption in your home. But they give you very detailed technical report. So they'll do a pre-BER, but they'll also give you a technical report that's going to really explain what upgrades in what areas are needed to bring that home up to a B2 rating. And so you have a really detailed technical report of your home. They will deduct the €350 grant upfront off the cost of that assessment. So again, it all depends on what type of house you have, how big it is, and so that will determine the level of assessment that's required. But we're seeing that they're coming in between seven to nine hundred euro, and then you're getting that three hundred fifty deducted straight off. And in some cases, they can be cheaper again. So it is worth, like we've, as I said, we've thirteen one-stop shops. Ring around, have a chat with them. We'll have a number of them. I think we've about seven in the room on the 20th so you actually can come in and chat to each one and see what they can offer and again they all have different kind of lead times of when they can assign assessments so it is worth coming in and having a chat with them and yeah as i said that's a really good starting point now you've you've mentioned a couple of times this is the first event a public facing event for the seai why have you chosen um the lovely county of offley as i say as a as a very uh, proud offley woman myself <laughs> well because it is lovely but also because there is quite a high density of homes in that surrounding area that have low BERs and they're also on fossil fuels so we really want to get those homeowners to engage with us and to find out how they can make their homes more energy efficient and the event itself is taking place between 11 and 4, I think, yeah. is it? Yeah. On the 20th of May. It's in the Tullamore Court Hotel. Yeah. Can I turn up on the day? Do I need to book a ticket? How does all that work? 
Well, perfectly, we'd like you to pre-register with us. So we do have a link on Eventbrite. So if you search SEAI Home Energy Tullamore, there's a, an Eventbrite page. It's free, but it's just, we do know that these events can be very, very popular and it's just an easier route if you arrive pre-registered. Otherwise, you will have to wait and we'll register on the door. So you can turn up on the on the day and we're registering you there. But if you can't pre-register, that will be easier. Can I just turn up when I feel like it or is it an all day? Like, do I need to be there to sit down all day or, or how, just in the practicalities of it, how does that work? How does it work? Yeah, so as I said, we'll have a number of exhibition stands. So we'll have our stand, we'll have our one-stop shops, the Credit Union will be there. But we are going to run just short kind of 15, 20 minute talks in the morning and in the afternoon. We don't have specific times, um, but it'll just be an overview of home energy upgrades, how to plan your home energy upgrade, the different types of um measures and upgrades that you can carry out but you will get all that information from us at the stand as well we can go through all that so absolutely you can turn up at any time that suits you fantastic well i did register when i got the press release for myself so and i do hope to pop down on the day if i can susan andrews the marketing manager of the seai thank you very much for your time on this week's episode of let's go green as susan mentioned the registration for that is through eventbrite.ie so go on to eventbrite.ie and search for seai and tullamore and that should get you there susan i think Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. We will be back after the break. Midlands 183. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for on this week's episode of Let's Go Green. But before I get kicked off here, because I know I'm running very tight on time, I want to give a big shout out to all the pupils at St. Tola's National School in Delvin. As part of their Green Schools initiative, they're currently making a mural for their wall from bottle caps, recycled bottle caps. I've seen a couple of pictures. Chloe Farrell from the newsroom was out at the school during the week and it looks spectacular. So well done to all involved and I hope you send us pictures of the finished product. My thanks to my guests for this week's episode of Let's Go Green. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share the podcast from your preferred podcast platform with your friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back same time next week with another edition of Let's Go Green. Let's Go Green on Midlands 183. Supported by the Environmental Departments of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath County Councils.